if he wins, then I worry deeply about how things will be between us and Russia or just in terms of Putin's power. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. This is our weekly roundup where we invite a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they are shaping the political landscape. Joining me today, two of my favorite politicology guests, Kagar Shamali is a former spokesperson for the U.S. Mission to the U.N. and the Treasury's Office of Terrorism and Financial Intelligence. She also has served as Middle East Director at the National Security Council in the Obama White House. She's an adjunct professor at Columbia University School of International and Public Affairs and is the host and creator of Oh My World on YouTube, a show that breaks down geopolitics and world news stories in a fun and easy way. Hagar, thank you as always for being here. Good morning. Thank you, Ron. I always love being on with you. Thanks for having me. And returning to the roundup is Zach Joukowsky. Zach is a Democratic political consultant from North Carolina. He is a principal at Title Fight and the founder and CEO of Brackish Solutions. Previously, he served as a campaign manager of Katie Hill's successful congressional campaign, where he flipped a seat from red to blue, and as our political director at the Lincoln Project. Zach, welcome back. Ron, it's great to be with you. Up first this week, the tent pole of the Republican effort to impeach Joe Biden might just be collapsing after a Trump-picked prosecutor indicted one of the GOP's central impeachment witnesses for his role in a Russian PSYOP. Then we'll discuss Donald Trump's looming legal bills, his new money-making scheme, and MAGA's grotesque comparisons of Trump to the late Alexei Navalny, who was poisoned, tortured, and just this last week probably killed by Vladimir Putin. Later, we'll look at the central figures in Trumpistan plotting to make Christian nationalism a key part of a second Trump administration. Then we'll find out what other political developments our panel are paying attention to and why. Finally, for our Politicology Plus members, we will discuss the Georgia fake electors case, the hearing about whether the DA Fannie Willis has a legitimate conflict of interest, and the huge blunder in her relationship with the special prosecutor in the case. If you're not yet one of our amazing Politicology Plus members, you're missing about 30% of the episodes we record each week or so. Uh, so if you want to hear more from our brilliant guests, politicology.com slash plus is how you can get access to everything we publish. And it's all ad-free. And you'll be joining a thoughtful group of pro-democracy listeners who help keep this show going. So to level up right now, go to politicology.com slash plus or click the link in your show notes. Okay, there are a couple of stories about Russia this week that I think highlight just how brazen the Putin regime has become uh, lately. And I'm thinking about all of this as we get into the meat of a presidential election, and we know Russia continues to target us with information warfare. These include two of the biggest news stories of the week, Alexei Navalny's murder and the indictment of the FBI informant at the heart of the Republicans' impeachment inquiry into Joe Biden. That's how Jim Jordan described it. Anyway, back in January, Vladimir Putin's most prominent domestic critic, Alexei Navalny, died on Friday. Navalny was almost certainly killed for his opposition to Putin. Uh, Russia's federal penitentiary service announced that Navalny, quote, felt unwell after a walk and almost immediately lost consciousness. Uh, Russia was holding Navalny on bogus charges at a penal colony north of the Arctic Circle. Uh, even if he did die after taking a walk, this wasn't some leisurely stroll on a nice late winter, early spring day. Putin also tried to have Navalny assassinated in 2020. 
He had been held in Russia as a political prisoner since January 2021. Last Thursday, also, FBI informant Alexander Smirnov was arrested at the Las Vegas airport after getting off an international flight. Now, a federal court also unsealed a two-count indictment returned by a federal grand jury in California, charging Smirnov with making false statements and creating a false and fictitious record for statements that were part of an official FBI record uh, in what's called a Form 1023. So this case is being brought by Special Counsel David Weiss, who was appointed by Donald Trump and U.S. Attorney for Delaware and stayed on to lead the investigation into Hunter Biden. But the reason why this is important is because Jim Jordan, who's one of the architects of the House impeachment inquiry into Biden, described that Form 1023 as the heart of their case against Biden. The indictment alleges that Smirnov lied to federal agents when he claimed that a Ukrainian oil company hired Hunter Biden to protect us through his dad from all kinds of problems. That's the quote. So just to be abundantly clear, these are allegations that prosecutors have made in an indictment. This case hasn't been tried and they haven't been proven uh, in court. But this Trump-appointed prosecutor believes it beyond a reasonable doubt and believes that he can prove it to a jury beyond a reasonable doubt. We just talked about this standard uh, for indictments last week. Prosecutors also submitted a filing on Tuesday seeking to keep Smirnov in prison until there's a trial. And in that filing, they claimed that some of the uh, allegedly false information about Hunter Biden came from officials associated with Russian intelligence. And if these allegations are proven in court uh, or Smirnov admits to them, it would mean that several key members of the Republican Party in Congress, including James Comer, Jim Jordan, Senator Chuck Grassley, uh, and also Fox News, were wittingly or unwittingly participating in a Russian disinformation campaign on the American people. There are also a few other stories that point to how brazen Russia has been over the last week. On Tuesday, Russian authorities announced they arrested a Los Angeles woman who was in Russia on treason charges for taking part in pro-Ukraine protests outside Russia and for sending some money to Kyiv. Also on Tuesday, a Russia court upheld the detention of Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovich, uh, and the U.S. government, of course, has deemed him to be unlawfully detained. You might remember the story from over the summer that the Russian pilot who defected to Ukraine uh, and traded his military helicopter um, for half a million dollars, well, Spanish police officials told the New York Times that his body was found riddled with bullets in a small resort town on Spain's Mediterranean coast. Hagar, there's a lot of Russia going on this week. How are you reading all of this together, the brazenness of Russia here? And feel free to dive into any any particular component that you think is most important. Yeah, you really summed up a lot. It's really a week that um, the theme of Russia and Ukraine in general has taken over. Um, and and that's for a number of reasons. You have at the Munich Security Conference, Ukraine really took over, and and Navalny's death, of course, and um, and when you see this kind of behavior, so you have a lot here that you just summed up. So let me let me start sixty thousand foot level up. Um, when you see, and this is a rule for all dictators, when you see them crack down very heavily and start to arrest more people, detain more people, kill more people, it's because they genuinely feel threatened and insecure. And that's not just a talking point. It is because they genuinely feel that their grip on power, that they have something to fear and that they are losing their grip on power. And that's when I saw Navalny's death. Now, like like you said, his killing. This was a deliberate killing, however you want to look at it. Even if it was a slow, imposed death in a, this penal colony in the Arctic Circle where we knew that they had very severe and brutal uh, tactics, 
even if that's the case, um, it was still a deliberate killing or whether he was poisoned, whatever it might be. And the, the issue with that is that President Putin has has repeatedly tried to crush Navalny. And every time that has happened, every time he has, when he was poisoned with Novichok a few years ago and went to, and went to Germany in a coma um, and then recovered from it, every time he's been imprisoned and he was imprisoned over 10 times, every single time that happened, it only made his cause louder and it only made him more well-known. So every time Putin tried to crush him, it only it enhanced and amplified what he was trying to fight for, which was freedom and democracy. And he was doing that by exposing the corruption of the of the Putin regime. And so I'm a believer that although Putin's effort in this, although his effort is to, well, whether it's Navalny or anything else, whether it's extending the, the detention of Evan Gershkovich or killing this defector in Spain um, arresting this uh, this this woman, this w- who was uh, a resident of Los Angeles, as you said, um, whichever way you look at it, it, it it highlights two things. One, that he has he's scared of this. Um, he's scared he's losing his grip on power. He feels insecure, and he needs to convey fear in everyone's. He needs to instill fear in everyone's hearts. He needs to make them feel afraid to speak out, to protest. Uh, whatever it might be. And um, and you saw that after Navalny's death where th- many went to try and publicly grieve and you had almost 400 who were arrested, who were laying flowers and such. You had memorials that were destroyed. And they even arrested a priest who uh, had announced that he was planning a memorial service for Navalny. So they, they were trying to go to every length they can to instill fear among the people and quash dissent completely. And that ultimately comes from a place of insecurity. And then the, the second thing I would just highlight with Evan Gershkovich and, and the, the ballerina, the woman from um, who is, uh, it was based in LA, that is in addition to feeling fear and insecurity, that's also about uh, adding bargaining chips that they can use in potential negotiations. And again, that is something, part of that is how dictators, a lot of dictators, the Iranians do this as well, the Chinese do this as well. Um, this is one of the ways they they collect bargaining chips and to give themselves leverage in any kind of future political negotiation. But again, it, it stems from a place of weakness because it, they need these types of hostages in order to give themselves power to, to elevate their position of power in a, in a potential negotiation. So all of the things, now I'm, I'm, I didn't dive into the, um, Alexander Smirnov part. I'm going to leave Zach to that, but I, um, all of this to me highlights, he has this fear of grip on power. The only thing I'd end on is that doesn't necessarily mean he's going to fall or collapse anytime soon. It just means that the threat he faces is very real. And, and he's working harder and harder to quash that. And it just feels as though Russian citizens are only growing in their dissent and, and dissatisfaction with Putin's regime. So, Zach, let's talk about the Smirnov piece. So after 2016, we talked a lot about the Russian troll farms and the Clinton and DNC emails getting pushed by WikiLeaks. Um, if the DOJ's allegations about Smirnov are true, and we have a lot of reason to believe they are, although they haven't been proven yet. The Russian disinformation campaign here has been boosted, uh, as I said, knowingly or unknowingly, by key committee leaders in the House, um, by a prominent U.S. senator and uh, on Fox News. So how much harder is it going to be for the Biden campaign to counter this when it has the weight of an oversight committee report 
behind it. And now Jim Jordan is downplaying the significance of the uh, of the of the original document that was at the center of the campaign. How much harder is this going to be? Yeah, you know, I think one place that I, w- I want to start here is that an impeachment is a big deal. It is by definition supposed to be a very very big deal. And I want to bring back an old phrase: trust but verify. This was the heart. That's Jim, how Jim Jordan described this testimony, the heart of the impeachment case. And they didn't trust, they didn't verify it. It all is turning out to be nonsense, right? And so how significant is that? It shows how easily prominent elected officials can be duped or, 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 be, uh, or, or, or promote misinformation, disinformation, whatever you want, propaganda, whatever you want to call it. I think we've also, this is a great time to talk about the evolution of the Russian disinformation campaign. In 2016, it was pretty rudimentary, right? It was just mm-hmm. bots on everything, you know, and, and, and boosting stuff or paid stuff uh, that, that, that served content that was divisive in people's feeds. In 2020, there was much more of an effort to just amplify Americans who were, you know, useful idiots parroting Russian talking points. And now it's gotten even more advanced and it's going to continue to evolve. You know, it, I think it's hard watching our elected officials make such a grievous error with such massive national security implications and then downplay it the way that Jim Jordan and Co are doing right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think we can make it partisan and, and, and in a sense it is, but it's just it's just a sad moment for our country. We are supposed to be better than that. We deserve better from our elected officials. They have made a grievous misstep on a serious matter and there's no contrition. There's no admission of wrongdoing. Uh, and, and, and they're, and they're just making it out to be not a big deal, but it is very much a big deal. I want to go back to Navalny for a second. Cause I've, yeah. I've, I've been thinking about a couple questions that have just been floating around in my head about him. And the first one is, would I die for my principles? Would I die for my country? Um, would I die slowly for my principles in my country? Would I die slowly knowing it also is going to put those that I love the most in this world at risk for my principles and my country. And I don't know the answer. And I'd like to think if I was in a position like he was, that I would do the right thing, do the brave thing, the courageous thing. But I don't know. And, and I don't know that I'm ever going to know. But he did it. And look, like everybody, is he perfect? No. Does he have flaws? Of course he does. But he is a truly courageous individual. And I believe that he should be celebrated and lauded and we should rally behind him because that is the kind of courage that brings down a dictator like Vladimir Putin. I kind of want to talk about Tucker Carlson on the wake of Alex Navalny, but we don't need to go there. Like, I just like the, the contrast between, okay. Um, the utter lack of courage that he exhibits and the apathy <sighs> or hatred of this country that he exhibits. It really is the opposite of Navalny. Yeah, I we didn't actually. I don't think that we talked about. Uh, we talked about Tucker, bef- you know, before he actually released the interview. But I don't think we actually talked about the material in the interview itself. So, well, certainly not Tucker at the grocery store and Tucker at the metro. Um, Hagar, do you want to explain a little bit about just how much of a clown he made of himself uh, by? Let's set the inter- set the interview aside, right, and allowing Putin to drone on for you know uninterrupted for so long. the The idea that Russia is this sort of advanced civilization that puts America to shame that their that their metro is like the crown jewel of transportation systems uh, that the West can't even fathom. That their grocery stores are sort of overflowing with bounty, and oh, you can have it all for you know under $40 in your grocery cart. What's going on here? Besides, besides Tucker making a fool of himself, what is actually um, being served? Uh, how is the Russian interest being served here? And do you wonder, or do we have any evidence to 
you know, that points to maybe all of this propagandizing was sort of conditioned uh, on or, or as part of the part of the deal he made in order to get access to Putin in the first place that the FSB basically showed up and said, yeah, uh, we'll give you access to Putin, even though no other journalist has been able to interview him. Um, but you have to go to our metro and you have to go to our grocery stores and and sing our praises uh, on Western media. Yeah. So first, this to me was not an act of journalism in any way, shape or form. It was an act of him being a vehicle for Russian propaganda and and him being ignorant in the process. This is something that all dictators pursue. It is not unique to the Russian government at all. Um, in fact, I remember at the before, or it was really right before the talks, the negotiations with the Iran um, Iranian regime had begun. I was in government at the time. And you had a couple journalists go to Iran that the Iranian government invited. Um, one was Robin Wright and the other one was Ann Curry, I believe, but I, I don't want to, I need to fact check that. Um, and it was an embarrassment. And they came back to us. I remember Robin Wright in particular sitting in front of me at Treasury telling me, you know, your sanctions aren't working at all. The Iranian government, they took us to a Ferrari store and there were people there buying Ferraris and those places, they couldn't keep the Ferraris there. And I'm looking at her and I couldn't believe that she believed what was handed to her. And this is something that is repeatedly mocked in entertainment, right? There was that movie uh, done, uh, also the name is going to escape me, about about North Korea. Oh my God, the fake grocery stores. They, yeah, the plastic yeah, fruit. Yeah, exactly. That's, they're <laughs> mocking, but that is because they're mocking something. That, it's a satirical skit. They're trying to mock something that happens, that when these governments invite international journalists, it's they have one goal only, and it's to whitewash themselves and to make themselves look like the perfect society. Um, and some of that is that some of it is because they have policies or or perspectives that they want to change coming from the United States. And some of it is that they want to make even their own people feel as though, you know, you see, our society is 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 always better. And and that is why the there it's always an interest of the Russian government, of the Chinese government, of the Iranians to interfere in our elections and so dissent and so division because they can point to that and then say, you see what democracy gets you? It gets you killings and it gets you crime and it gets you just a- people angry at each other. Look at our perfect metro and look at the bread in the grocery store. So listen, every when I was in government, we knew this, everybody knew this. Tucker Carlson clearly doesn't know this. When you go to Russia specifically, and this is the case for most dictatorships, but Russia specifically, you're going to be followed everywhere, everywhere. There are going to be cameras everywhere. Their counterintelligence, the counterintelligence threat is significant. And so that guy was followed everywhere he went. He was likely given a list of items that they may have couched it like, oh, you know, you should visit our metro or you should visit our grocery store. And I'm speculating here on this, but the the fact is that they're going to give him ideas because they're going to try and steer him in a certain way. And again, it's the whole goal of it is to make it seem as though um, you all in the U.S. To, to convey to his base, because Putin saw an opportunity in communicating to Tucker's base in particular, his audience, to make them believe that Russia's in fact good, that Putin is in fact good, that Russia's system is better than what we have here. We have a, a, a shitty subway system and we have, um, apparently we don't have bread and, and, you know, whatever it might, whatever it might be. So in my mind, Tucker Carlson was completely played, but it's dangerous is the thing because he does have a large base. He does have a large audience and that, that audience, I, you've seen, I've met people who love his show and, and they will tell me all the time, you know, the the aid to Ukraine needs to stop. The way you all view Putin, it, Putin isn't fair. It's fake news. It's disinformation. Whereas Tucker's the one amplifying 
that disinformation. But to, it so while it came off as completely grotesque and naive because he's he's praising a system that he 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 comes off like he doesn't he just doesn't understand. He doesn't understand that half of Russia can't buy the bread that he's smelling in the grocery store. Um, most of Russia is rural and and is they don't have metro systems with chandeliers. They don't have um, roads pe- that connect the country. Yeah. Right. People are afraid to speak out anyway, even if you were to go up to somebody random and 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 ask them anything, you know, what do you think about Putin? They're not going to tell him, oh, I, I think he's horrible. I think he's a human rights abusing thug. You know, that's not, they're not going to do that. So he came off to me, not only ignorant, um, uh, and, 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 da- but, but dangerously so, because he is in the middle of convincing, of, of parroting Russian propaganda to a large base that, not only listens, but has voting power. And that this year of, of, of any year, that is going to play out very, that's very important this year when you've got a candidate who is going to be the Republican nominee, very likely saying that we should stop aid to Ukraine and going out there and comparing himself to Alexei Navalny. I'm talking about Trump, obviously, comparing himself to Alexei Navalny and, and pretending like, like, you know, like he has, like he could save all, all of us. And if he, if he wins, then I worry deeply about how things will be between us and Russia, or just in terms of Putin's power. So the thing that's so galling and frustrating to me about, or one of the many things that's so galling and frustrating to me about Tucker Carlson is that he's clearly a horrendous journalist. He is not a good journalist. There's no metric by which you can look at him and say, yes, he does good journalism. He just doesn't. However, he's a pretty good propagandist. You know, you mm-hmm. look at his tone, you look at how he frames things. And, you know, if, if you think about it for a minute, you're like, wait a second, like, that's insane. You know, oh, every leader kills people. And that's why I don't want to be a leader. Like, like that, he, he makes, he says these things in a matter of fact manner. He presents them as if they are just this truth. And he presents complex issues very simply. They just happen to affirm whatever the Russian point of view is over and over and over and over again. And oftentimes very much run counter to American national interest. It's, it's the definition of propaganda. And he's good at it. Uh, and I think, you know, we got to be clear eyed about the fact that the guy is pretty talented at being a villain. He just did. <laughs> uh, another thing I want to throw out there too, you know, and this is just kind of to hammer home. He's a bad journalist in the South where I live in, in North Carolina. There's a saying that's pretty common. Thank God for Mississippi. And that saying exists because whatever is bad about your state or whatever it's not particularly good at, it is worse in Mississippi. Russia as a nation is poorer than Mississippi. Like, I don't care that one subway station has a has a chandelier in it. Like, hey, how's the Wi-Fi in Siberia? You know, it's it's just uh, the the whole framing is absurd, and and we can know that. But he is effectively communicating to folks that are that are willing to take him seriously because he's just telling it like it is. Uh, and and that's just going to be an ongoing struggle this entire election because he's making money doing this, and there are going to be more Tucker Carlson copycats. There are going to be more useful idiots for the Russian government and and and, uh, and you know and and propaganda machine. And that, and we've got to do something. So I'm a little bit, so, so lots has been said, a lot has been said and will be said about the, you know, the depravity of Tucker Carlson and his sort of decline into, um, you know, propagandism. Um, what I'm more interested in, because I, I think it's just more interesting to talk about and wonder about and potentially solve is why there's so much interest, why there's so much of an appeal for what Tucker is selling, in particularly the praise for Putin and the praise for Russia, among so much of the right, where um, historically we on the right have been 
much more hawkish, much more anti-Russia. Where did all this come from? Why, what do you attribute the, the appetite for, um, for pro-Russia propaganda among, uh, as you said, such a large audience? Where, either of you, really. I'm curious where you think this comes from. Because, because okay, I, I, I believe a lot of it has to do with the, with the compelling way that Tucker is able to uh, weave fact with fiction. He does it very, very well. He's very talented at that. And, and I think he knows exactly what he's doing. He's not a true believer in you know, how great Russia is. I think he knows precisely what he's doing. He's smarter than that. But I'm just as interested in where this appetite comes from in the first place. So, you know, for me, I, I try and keep things simple. And so to me, the simplest explanation is we as a nation have complex problems. And there are nuanced solutions and there are nuanced issues. And it's a lot easier to say one person can fix it than get into the how can we fix it in, in a democratic system. What Tucker and what what and, and I think the appeal of Russia to so much of the country is it's simple. You know, it is it is. Is it democratic? No. Is it something that is a, a society that I want to live in? No. But is, are the proposed solutions that they that they're throwing out there straightforward and simple? Yeah, like it's it's just it's all build the wall messaging. Like oh, like you know we're just we're just going to round up everybody and clean up the subways. Like that's horrible. That's a that's a human rights violation. But that's a solution to a, a very simple and straightforward solution to a problem. And so I think the solutions that are being proposed are not real. But I think the appetite for simple fixes to complex problems is very very large right now. Yeah, I, you know, I've done a lot of thinking about this because I can't understand it at all. If you think about when Iraq invaded Kuwait and we got involved in that, I remember, I'm, listen, I was younger, I was a kid, but I just remember this sense across the nation, across the US, in support of our troops, in support of the mission. And there was nobody who said Iraq was right. That that this that that the Iraq was the right way. Everybody was in favor of Kuwait on this one. The, it was very clear who was right and who was wrong in this. And so to see this happen now, thirty years later, I guess it just I I I also I cannot analyze it. The only thing I can figure out when I try to listen because I do know some people, very few, but I do know a handful who are in this camp of like liking who feel that that, you know, they kind of secretly like Putin or they are, they're not that secret about it. Um, and along with the Tucker Carlson's kind of like that, that perspective. And what I can analyze from them is that it's a lot of it actually stems from not wanting to like the other side, right? They don't, Ukraine is corrupt, you know, and, and therefore Hunter and Biden and all of them are corrupt and, and don't believe the, the democracy argument, you know, and like poor Putin and, and, and look at the Russians, Russian people. And, and, and by the way, mo I mean, most Russian people are, are wonderful people, by the way, this has nothing to do with the Russian people. Um, the, you know, this, that's the only thing I can analyze. And that's not, you know, this is not my expertise. My expertise is more the foreign policy side of things, but I, I find that the more I try to communicate to them, like, don't you understand why we're supporting Ukraine? Don't you understand this is the deal of the century that they're fighting for democracy? Don't you understand what happens if Putin wins and then he moves no, on to other don't. countries? And then they don't. They, People don't understand don't. what that means. No, they that picture I'm hasn't wrong. been painted yeah. for that. They, 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 the, the argument hasn't been, We have lost the plot between... The, like, the difference between the United States and Russia. I don't think most of these people could articulate the difference in ideologies, in worldviews, in, in global interests between the United States and Russia. They don't know the difference. Honestly, I don't think they understand what happens if Russia wins. 
Two two things. One, we got to just start showing Rocky Four on every single network television station to like <laughs> help simplify and clarify things for folks. Rocky Four actually lays out quite a bit about the differences, like pretty effectively. That is a piece of positive propaganda, by the way. Uh, I'm half kidding, but like everyone should watch Rocky Four. Uh, it, it lays it out nicely. Another thing that happened to me over this past weekend, I had a conversation with a friend of mine, Republican guy, uh, you know, kind of leans Trump, doesn't love him, but but is kind of is terrified of Biden's age. And he said something to me that really caught me off guard that I couldn't disagree with more, but it was helpful to hear his perspective. He said, listen, Trump is an alpha. Biden's not. Putin's an alpha. You want your world leaders to be an alpha. And I was hearing that. I'm like, man, like, what are you saying? Like, you cannot distill these complicated things into, oh, you just want an alpha in charge. And also, like, Mm. I don't think that Putin is, but that's something we can debate later. I think it helps me understand the perspective, though, of, of some of the folks on the other side. Like, their reasons don't make sense to me. They make sense to them. And I don't know how we persuade them, how we bring them back, how we introduce new pieces of information to change their minds. But like, you know, we had a long conversation at the end of it. He just said, ah, you want an alpha. And like, and there was nothing I could say to change his mind. Politicology is definitely not sponsored by Trump sneakers. Have you ever found yourself rummaging through your closet thinking, what I really need is a pair of tacky gold high tops to complete my look? Are you in the market for $400 shoes that may or may not ship seven to eight months after your purchase? Do you ever shop online and see a note that says these images may or may not be an exact representation of the product? Then go ahead and smash click that add to cart button for our Never Surrender High Tops, the official sneaker of President Donald J. Trump. And don't forget to round out your gaudy new ensemble with our Victory 47 cologne, the signature scent of strength and success encased in a luxurious gold bottle. Just visit GetTrumpSneakers.com and use the code GRIFT at checkout. That's G-R-I-F-T for 65% off your sartorial dignity. All proceeds will go directly to victims of sexual assault for the foreseeable future. Hagar, <laughs> I see you browsing the inventory right now. Are you looking for uh, for uh, a completion to that that uh, wig outfit that you pull off so so so, so successfully? I already posted a satirical <laughs> skit on on this because it was like a gift to a, a political satirist. Um, you know, when I heard this news, I think it was Monday morning. I heard it, and I was listening to the radio and I was just like, wait, what, wait, can I rewind that? Did I, did I actually hear that he did this? Um, you know, so here's the thing on the sneakers and, um, he, you know, so he presented it at SneakerCon, which is weird in and of itself because SneakerCon is about sneaker culture and streetwear and, and trading rare shoes. Um, and, and so, and, Apparently, and there is a fight going on over social media as to how many people booed <laughs> and how many people cheered. And I cannot, and they're all in my feed. And I, after, after posting my, my skit, and I just can't deal with it anymore because most of the press said that the majority booed, but some cheered. But anyway, so he rolls this out. But you know what? The joke is on us because he sold out of his sneakers. <laughs> he sold out, he bit, he had a thousand pairs and there are others apparently there are two others i'm not sure if you knew uh, that there are, more, there are two yeah, others yeah, yeah, yeah there are so. two kinds other kinds that you can you can buy one is white one is red they're heinous yeah, all did, of them are the most the tacky thing i've ever seen they look like they came out of mc <laughs> hammer's closet and i just but but and and he even sold one pair for nine thousand dollars because they were autographed by him <laughs> so 
that's why I say, you know, in one part, like I, we can make fun of this, but the joke is on us. The man will continue coming up with merchandise that that seems to fly off the shelves. Um, I just found it funny because, and this is the skit I ended up doing, was that, like, you know, I just don't view Trump as like a sneaker wearing, promoting kind of guy. And and so Could you imagine him walking around, stomping around in a pair of these things? He'd look like such a clown, even more he, so. I mean, he already looks like a clown, but <laughs> like, but right? Like, I mean, he has a lot of orange face paint as it is, but, but, um, but I, you know, I just tried, I, the skit I ended up doing was making fun of him working out and that like he has no stamina to work out. Right. Like, and you check it out. You'll like it. But, but, um, but yeah, the, you know, he will do anything. The guy will do anything for a buck. This is how it appears. But the thing is, it works. He has a base that's like, give me those shoes. You know? so, it, it, I mean, it, what are we going to do? It, I'm not buying broke them. Broke ass billionaire. How can, it, like, like, how can that possibly be a good use of time if you're a billionaire? Because you're right. Like, it works every time. People buy it every time. And like, but it wasn't that many shoes. It couldn't have been yeah. that much money. He's supposed no. to be a billionaire. He probably made a couple hundred grand. Like, you think about what percentage of his net worth, in theory, that should be. And it's like, it doesn't make sense, right? And now. I know, he's probably fudged what his net worth is, but it just, you know, I, maybe he's in a cash crunch. I don't know, but he it just, the brokenness of his actions blows my mind sometimes. So about that cash crunch, uh, the launch was just a day after the judge presiding over his uh, civil business fraud trial in New York State ordered Trump, his sons, business associates and company, et cetera, to pay over $354 million in damages uh, and also not do business in New York over the next three years. Uh, New York Attorney General uh, Letitia James said that if you include the interest, the total is over $450 million, um, which is a considerable amount of money even for a billionaire. And I think latest estimates are that he's worth somewhere around $2 billion, and not all that is liquid. So uh, cash crunch indeed. Uh, Trump called the ruling a fine of $350 million for doing a perfect job. The latest financial hit, uh, is in addition to the massive awards, obviously, in the E. Jean Carroll defamation case where he was ordered to pay over $80 million. So the legal bills are putting a pretty big strain, uh, especially on his PAC money. Uh, the leadership PAC, Trump Save America, raised uh, $8,500 in January uh, while spending $4 million, according to their most recent FEC filings, and about three quarters of that went to paying lawyers. Uh, so over the last year, Trump's political apparatus has now spent more than $50 million just on legal costs, uh, while the DNC and Biden um, have a huge fundraising edge. Biden's re-election team has $130 million in the bank, and that's including $42 million they just raised in January. Uh, so uh, we should say during his Fox News interview with Laura Ingram, Trump was asked how he was going to pay these bills. Here's that exchange. How will you put up that kind of money because you have a bond to put up? Even if, if you appeal, you've got to put up escrow money. That's uh, uh, it's a lot it of, a lot a of dough. It is a form of Navalny. Yeah, they're doing a Navalny. Trump isn't the only person liking himself to Navalny. It's now coming from figures like Dinesh D'Souza and Newt Gingrich. Um, Jonah Goldberg wrote uh, for The Dispatch about how these comparisons between Trump and Navalny show the moral rot in parts of the American right. Jonah notes that there's this false notion that Joe Biden is the moral equivalent of Vladimir Putin. And it's you know slanderous, not just of Biden, but of America itself. There's a clip also from Liz Cheney when she was on The View talking about um, how there are some Republicans who want to paint Biden as worse than Trump. Here's what she said. 
If it came down to Biden v. Trump, would you vote for Biden? Um, I'm not going to endorse anybody today. Um, and uh, I think that, um, again, we don't know exactly uh, what the choice will be. I would say that I will never vote for Donald Trump. And that... Um, and that there are some conservatives who are trying to make this claim that somehow Biden is a bigger risk than Trump. My view is, I, I disagree with a lot of Joe Biden's policies. Yeah. We can survive bad policies. He's not crazy. We cannot survive right. torching the Constitution. That's right. It's not even the same level. Exactly. So first, uh, Hagar, what do you make of the Trump, Navalny, Biden, Putin comparisons? I know this goes back to our first segment, um, but I want to tease that out a little bit more. And then, Zach, I'm curious about how you are, if you were looking at a presidential campaign with these fundraising numbers and these types of expenditures, uh, what would you be thinking? Go ahead, Hagar. (laughs) So listen, aside from it being incredibly offensive, um, it's kind of poser behavior because it's almost like when, you know, when, when, when something is trending, and you want to get on that bandwagon, right? You do a video on Taylor Swift. Not that I've ever done that before. Maybe I have. Well, you do a video on Taylor Swift because you know it's just going to operate so well. It's going to get so many views because everybody's talking about Taylor Swift. That hashtag is going to go crazy. And that's how it came off to me, aside from the fact that it's blatantly offensive. Um, and, and you know, it's hard to say, but I would imagine that there's maybe he actually gen- there's genuine belief that they actually genuinely see a comparison you know, we'll give them that, but it's, it's, it's offensive to Navalny's legacy. Well, okay. may I just say, yes, Ron, go, uh, you mentioned the Jonah Goldberg piece about moral yeah. not. I yeah. think about the Navalny comparisons and clearly that is an example of it. It's also an example of intellectual rot because that is just fucking mm. dumb. That is like one of the dumbest, compa- like most ridiculous, like dishonest comparisons I can possibly imagine. Navalny was in a prison camp in the Arctic, North of the Arctic. Trump, lives in country clubs and luxury apartment buildings and is a billionaire. Like that is an absurd, deeply offensive, morally bankrupt conclusion to reach. And it's also just pretty dumb. And so I I, want to start there. Uh, Beyond that, here's a stat that I just want to share with y'all about. (laughs) It was in one of those articles. So Trump valued Mar-a-Lago, for example, at between $426 million and $612 million. The Palm Beach tax assessor values at, at between 18 and $27 million. That is a, a significant gap, I think it's safe to say. And the judge pointed this out. There is no contrition. There is no remorse from Trump, his team, his kids, whatever. And like, just think about those numbers. 18 to $27 million, tax assessor, $426 million to $612 million, Trump organization. Like mm-hmm. That is such an enormous gap that somebody has to be wrong. And a court of law has ruled that is, in fact, the Trump organization and Trump. And it just makes me sad that somebody can look at that and think, oh, it's not a big deal, because that is the moral rot that, that, that Jonah Goldberg was talking about. And I think, you know, to, to go along with moral rot, there has to be intellectual rot, too. All right. So we've talked a good amount on the show recently about the Christian groups who are uh, willing to sacrifice democratic norms like free elections uh, on the altar of their political outcomes. And in two of the uh, more wide-ranging long-form discussions I've had about this so far, we have talked about why this ubiquitous term Christian nationalism maybe isn't the most useful to describe what's happening. 
But that's precisely the term Trump's clerics are using as they prepare for a potential second administration. There's a think tank called the Center for Renewing America that's preparing to, this is their words, infuse Christian nationalist ideas in a Trump administration if he returns to power. And in one document, the CRA listed Christian nationalism in a bulleted list of top priorities in a second Trump term. They also listed invoking the Insurrection Act on day one to quash any protests and refusing to spend authorized congressional funds if the president doesn't like the project, which, by the way, was a tactic that we banned a long time ago, way back in the Nixon era. The effort is being led by a guy named Russell Vaught, who was the director of the Office of Management and Budget, OMB, during Trump's first term. He's also reportedly a potential chief of staff pick in a second Trump White House. He is not a fringe figure in the Republican Party. He's been pretty high up in Trump world. Uh, according to one person who spoke with Politico, Vought and Trump speak at least once a month, and Vought is hopeful that Trump will elevate Christian nationalism to be a focal point in a second term. Uh, under his plans, freedom of religion would remain a protected right, but they'd use their administration positions to promote Christian doctrine and imbue public policy with it. So just as an example, uh, Vought has proposed an immigration agenda arguing that whether a person has, quote, accepted Israel's God laws and understanding of history, end quote, should determine whether they can immigrate to the U.S. Vought has a close affiliation with former Trump administration official William Wolf, according to Politico. Uh, Wolf has advocated for overturning same-sex marriage and reducing access to contraceptives. He's also called for ending surrogacy and no-fault divorce. Um, he once wrote on X, Christians should reject a Christless conservatism and demand the political movement we are most closely associated with make a return to Christ-centered foundations because it's either Christ or chaos, even on the right, which was uh, reminiscent of a sign I saw during the January 6th insurrection that said, Jesus or hellfire. A lot of these policies they're pushing, I think, are a reaction to the more radical pieces of the of of culture on the left and this cycle of secular revolutions and religious counter revolutions was a big part of one of these two part conversations I had most recently with David Gushy that we just released last week and in that conversation Gushy talked about um, what this is a reaction to let's listen to his words now the way that the the Christian right used to say it was what they were against was liberalizing trends in the area of quote unquote family values sex abortion marriage, feminism. But I think plenty of scholarship as well as plenty of evidence in front of us shows us that it wasn't just that, it was also a visceral negative reaction against uh, the, the ethnic, uh, ethnic pluralizing of America through immigration, um, against intermarriage, against the civil rights movement, and, or at least some aspects of the civil rights movement or its consequences, against uh, immigration from global South countries, also, one should also not forget the Supreme Court decisions that tightened the application of the separation of church and state, like the prayer and schools decision. That was where people first started freaking out in 1962. So take the church-state separationism stuff as one part, uh, the civil rights movement as another part, immigration changes as another part, sexual revolution as another part, um, abortion, birth control. Okay, now picture a community that thinks all of that or feels, if it, whether or not it's willing to say it, that all of that is wrong. Mm -hmm. 
that all of that made America worse, not better. So reactionary, a reactionary posture towards modern social changes combined with an authoritarian religiosity that says, we already know what's right. It's dictated to us and by the church or by the Bible. This is an outright rebellion against what's right. We must push back. Zach, I want to start with you. I'm very curious, because uh, I don't think you and I have talked a ton about this, um, of how you read this, whatever, whether you want to call it uh, Christian nationalism, Christian supremacy, or David Gushy's term, which I have, I think so far for me is the most useful authoritarian reactionary Christianity, how you read this development um, on, on the right. Um, and maybe a more specific question is about the way political media covers it. Um, one of the things I remember talking with Matthew Taylor about a while back is how political media don't really have the knowledge uh, to distinguish between run-of-the-mill Christianity and this mutant strain that believes it has a divine mandate to seek political power and domination over American culture and law. Democracy be damned if it gets in the way. Um, and as a consequence, this flattening in our mainstream information world of Christianity uh, leaves people maybe not as alarmed as they ought to be about the prospect of, of uh, this entering um, the Republican Party's sort of um, mandate if they win again. How are you thinking about this? Yeah, you know, so I, I think about this in the context of we've had a lot of religious revivals, religious awakenings over the history of, of this country, right? And so the pendulum always, it's, it's swinging one way or the other. The last, you know, couple of decades and maybe maybe beyond that, it has swung towards more socially progressive, more socially liberal. I think personally, that's a good thing. Uh, I, I very much disagree with the stance of, of, of some of the folks we're talking about here. But there is now a multi-billion dollar effort to make the pendulum swing back, right? And a great example of that and it's not all going to be, you know, kind of the Christian nationalism, like overt messaging. It's going to be stuff like the He Gets Us commercial during the Super Bowl, right? Mm -hmm. That's trying to rebrand Jesus to bring more people into the fold. Uh, you know, it's going it's to, a, it's a multifaceted effort. And I think it is hard for the media and I think maybe just the human mind to understand the full scope of what is happening right now. How many different organizations are, are, are funding things to, to promote this policy agenda? How many different groups have been created since the first Trump, since, since, since the Trump administration? Uh, how many people are actively working to advance a cause that they believe in deeply? You, it's important to understand the psychology of some of the folks that are involved in this movement. They don't adhere to the, quote, laws of man. They believe they are, they believe that they are taking their orders from a higher power that supersedes the laws of this land, that supersedes the laws of the U.S. government. And that's a pretty frightening starting place to me. Uh, I think that what what I what I fear is that it will seem as if this is just the normal kind of default stance, but this is not normal, right? You know, you 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 look at at who the leaders of these organizations are and the policies they're promoting. And this ain't Methodism, you know. This is mm -hmm. not Presbyterians. It, it it's it's oftentimes folks that are involved in unaffiliated uh, Southern Baptist uh, churches. They they they're they are not beholden to structures. There, there are fewer checks and balances and all these things. You know, they're, they're dark money organizations. They're not for profits. It is the web. When you look at the totality of it, it is massive. Mm -hmm. It is everywhere. It is in every city. It is in every state. Um, it's in every zip code. Uh, and I think it's important to point this out. 
the folks that are the most adamant pushing policies that I find, you know, horrifying, they believe that they are doing righteous, good work. Now, do we think that? No, but they believe that they are on the side of the righteous and that is incredibly difficult to combat. And I think it's important that we are paying societally and in and, 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 and mass attention to the policies they're talking about. Don't hear something crazy and say, oh, that's crazy, whatever, and, and, and move on. When you hear something that frightens you, like we are going to ban birth control, which is a very mm-hmm. popular talking point right now amongst the far right, and particularly within this subgroup, listen to them, take them seriously. I, I forget who it was, but there was, there was a writer, I want to say in the Atlantic recently, that said everybody, every American should attend one Trump rally. I think not only should they attend mm-hmm. one Trump rally, everyone should go to a, a, you know, an evangelical megachurch before the yes. election, you will be yes. shocked at what you're hearing from the pulpit, which, and by the way, these are not for profit uh, status. And so they're not paying taxes the same way that you and I are. That's another story for another day. But I think the line between the religious and the political, it hasn't just gotten blurred. It is being crossed repeatedly. And we're going to see more folks like Mike Johnson. They're going to, they're going to further erode those lines or further cross those lines because that's not a bug. That's the goal. Yeah, since you mentioned uh, Mike Johnson, I just want to note that Politico is now reporting he delivered a presentation uh, at a weekend Republican retreat that was supposed to be about a map uh, to keeping the majority, but ended up turning into a sermon. And people in the room said that uh, Johnson was discussing the moral decline of America and particularly focusing on declining church membership and the nation's shrinking religious identity. This, and, and, you know, Earlier, we were talking about this guy who might come uh, be Trump's new chief of staff. Trump's not, you know, anywhere close to winning at this point. Not in power. Mike Johnson is the Speaker of the House. Let's just remember he's in power now. So, Hagar, this isn't just happening here. It's happening all over the world, um, specifically in Poland, in Russia, in Hungary, in Brazil, um, it probably other places I'm not naming. Um, Italy. One of the things uh, I found so useful um, from my conversation with David and 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 his sort of outlining of how these these secular revolutions and then religious counter revolutions tend to push and pull throughout history um, was sort of placing us in that historical cycle right now. So when you look around the globe. Um, and obviously recognizing that this, this trend in America, we're not alone. Um, what does this uh, sort of foretell for, for, for where we're headed? And maybe you can talk about some of the similarities you see between um, authoritarian figures on the right in the United States and the leaders in these other countries who have figured out a way to weaponize uh, reactionary Christianity. Uh, for for their own political ends, you know, it's like you took the thoughts out of my out of my mind as as both you and Zach were speaking. It's um, this is a trend that's rising uh, around the world, but particularly, like you said, in 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 parts of Europe and and um, Eastern Europe. And the let me give you, I want, and it's scary, right? When you talk, when you shared the clip that you had, my first thought was, well, we have separation of church and state. Is this, how could this even be a threat? Like we have a system of checks and balances and courts to prevent this kind of thing from happening. But the, but the thing is, 
that's what we say. You could say that about anything. I really genuinely never thought we would see Roe v. Wade being overturned. Um, I don't think any of us could have foreseen that when Sarah Palin took the stage with McCain, that suddenly that's the direction the Republican Party would go in. You know, so there, so it's so easy to dismiss these things. It's easy for me to dismiss it, but but it is a scary trend that we have to pay attention to. And um, I'm going to highlight a story to you that just happened uh, in in Hungary in particular. By the way, another area that Tucker Carlson is in love with, particularly their prime minister, Viktor Orban, who is, um, well, elected, but has authoritarian tendencies, let's just say. Uh, that's the best way for me to, an increasingly authoritarian guy. Um, they just had a scandal, a major scandal in, in Hungary that's tied to this whole idea of what they call concert, Christian conservative family values. And they have used that, Viktor Orban, the prime minister, has used that as a very big part of his campaign um, and pillar of his, his of his political party that has allowed him, and he has used it to uh, justify restrictions he has placed on the gay and transgender community by uh, labeling them as um, labeling this community as involved in pedophilia and and do and putting these restrictions in the name of quote protecting children again for this conservative Christian family values um, when all of it really is just an anti LGBTQ plus agenda and uh, so now you had his president the Hungary's president pardoned an individual who um, who had been engaged in a cover-up of a sex abuse scandal at an orphanage. The man was convicted of covering up the sex abuse that was being that was taking place by his director. This was the deputy director. And the president pardoned him. The Hungarian president secretly pardoned him last year. And the justice minister signed off on it and so on. And now, fast forward to the beginning of this year, this information came to light publicly somehow and has outraged Hungarians. And 50,000 of them hit the streets over the weekend in Budapest to protest against the government, a country that they don't have protests of this kind usually. So one of the largest protests and certainly anti-government protests you've seen, calling out the government's hypocrisy, saying, you know, you say that your family, family values, that are Christian conservative family values, that you're all about protecting children. And here you've gone and pardoned this guy who was covering up sex abuse at an orphanage. And so the, you know, the thing that I saw when I saw this news, I saw, and, and you had at the same time, you had what happened to next Benedict, a binary, a non-binary teenager in Oklahoma. They were beaten up uh, to death in a bathroom in their school. And, and that stemmed from this dangerous rhetoric and campaigns that are shrouded in this as though it's meant to be family first, family values, Christian values, and so on, when actually it's either um, it's it's anti-LGBTQ, anti-human rights, anti-women, um, anti, it's certainly racist, you know, you name it. Um, the list goes on. And what I find is, and this guy said that from the from the thing that you said, and this is the case all over the world. These movements are usually a reaction to something that's happening, something that happens, the pendulum swings the other way. And I want to say that it's not, that this is not the majority of the people, and it isn't the majority of the people. We know that, like you said, it was a mutant strain. 
But it's terrifying when they have the ear of the Speaker of the House, of somebody running for president. And when you see it not only growing across the world, Italy has taken very scary moves. Um, Hungary, Poland, I would say, yes, Poland, except Poland swung back. They have, in their latest election, it was a win for democracy and um, and the individual who won will hopefully walk back the steps they took to the steps the previous guy took to walk back rights for women and rights for the LGBTQ plus community. So, you know, you do have that, but it's something you can't, you, can, you have to keep your eye on this ball because it seems like a mutant strain, like you said, but that mutant strain could become, you know, a widespread pandemic. Yeah, go ahead, Zach. Those so. All fantastic points. I, I want to go back to something, Ron, that, that you said at, at the beginning uh, of, of this topic. And you know, one of my favorite things to do whenever I'm on is to ask one question uh, <laughs> of you, because I'm, I'm very curious what your answer would be. You use the, t- the word clerics to describe mm. uh, some of the folks in the Trump orbit. I have a mm-hmm. guess as to why you use that, but I'd really like to know why that, that felt intentional. What's the why there? Why do you describe them as clerics? And what does that mean to you? It was intentional. I, I, when I was editing the brief, I wrote clerics because to me, this, uh, mutant strain is a, um, a fundamentalist sort of, um, uh, conquest for power that doesn't really have anything to do with the roots of the faith. Um, they are, uh, terrorists in a way. Um, and so when I say mutant strain, and I, I want to be very careful. Um, I'm not, we're not talking about all of Christianity, this particular, and in, in, in Mike Johnson's case, he has a appeal to heaven flag hanging outside of his, uh, door. And if you don't know what an appeal to fl- heaven flag is, uh, it comes out of the independent charismatic movement, um, that was speaking in tongues and praying against the demons that were literally occupying the U.S. Capitol um, on January 6th. They were there doing strategic spiritual warfare because they believe that the geographical location was occupied by a demon that they needed to vanquish. And when you're in a battle uh, where you believe that in in literal demons, um, then then you end up in very extreme places. You end up very justifying um, nearly anything. So I say clerics because I think it invokes a it invokes a visceral response um, to the ways religion has been used to justify horrible, horrible things. Um, uh, so that's why I picked the word. No, that, that, that's that's so interesting. You know, I, I think you know, Ron, we. I, I don't know if it's, if I hope it's okay for me to talk about this. We both grew up in churches that were, you know, somewhere in, in that kind of evangelical Pentecostal mm-hmm. realm. Right. Yep. And I think it's important, at least, at least for me to talk about how different what we're seeing today is than when I was a kid growing up in a yeah. Pentecostal church. Yeah. You know, when I was a kid, like there were, there were definitely some socially conservative things that were said. There were definitely, you know, traditional gender roles and, and, and some things like that were enforced, but there wasn't the same desire to go out into the world and impose these values. Right. They were values right. that were held dearly. There were values that oftentimes I didn't agree with, and it's part of why I've left the church ultimately. But there wasn't this desire to dominate. There right. wasn't this desire uh, to, to change the laws of the land. People just kind of wanted to adhere to this shared set of values they had. And 
maybe the church that I grew up in was not the norm. Maybe, maybe this has been the norm, but it certainly doesn't seem like that to me. I think this is a, a, a new set of developments. It, it absolutely is. We prayed for our leaders. We did not try to um, install them. You know what else we did? <laughs> we prayed for the people we didn't like. That's right. right. We didn't bully right. them. You know, our, right. we, we didn't go after yeah. them. We didn't yeah. condemn them. We prayed for them, you know? Yeah. And, and like that sh- psychological shift cannot be good. It's, yeah. it's, I, I think that is one of the best tenets of, of, you know, ma- most major world religions of like, pray for those you don't like. Love your enemies. Encourage, yeah, encourage those you don't like to, you know, yeah. talk to them, uh, encourage them to be better versions of themselves. Like that's a great outlook. I think whether you yeah. believe the the tenets of the religion or not, I think all of us can draw from that. You know, if, if somebody's a Trump supporter, I don't agree with them. I wish them well. I hope that they're okay. That doesn't have to be a religious thing. But that psychological shift, if you are not lockstep with us, you are bad. You are, you know, you are going to hell for sure. Like all that stuff. It's just not good for the psyche. It also, I, I feel almost sorry for some of the folks that are involved in this movement because it's got to be exhausting. It's got to be yeah. really hard to be that angry all the time, to feel like you're truly in a intergenerational, international war for the soul of the world you know, and, and the soul of your country. With, the, with, with eternal stakes, no less. Yeah. Doesn't get bigger than that. <laughs> yeah, there's very little of Christ in what this Christian movement uh, has become. One of the articles, Ron, you sent over, they were talking about how the Bible unequivocally recognizes the sovereignty of national borders. And it's like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, Jesus was a refugee. Like, I read the book too, you know? You're wrong. They are wrong. The things that they're basing their arguments off of are wrong. You know, okay. In the let's, King let's, James let's, Version, let's, in the NIV. Let's go, let's go back to first century borders then. I guess I guess that's what we got to do. <laughs> <laughs> now that we are uh, caught up on some of the biggest stories this week, um, let's talk about what we are watching under, over, on the radar, wherever it falls. Um, I've got one that I'll lead off with just because it flows so nicely from our segment on Christian nationalism. Uh, there's been a lot of headlines about the Alabama Supreme Court ruling on uh, in vitro fertilization, IVF, and I want to unpack that a little bit. Um, so the court, the high court in Alabama, was asked to decide whether frozen embryos created during IVF are technically unborn children and therefore subject to an Alabama statute called the Wrongful Death of a Minor Act. The Supreme Court in Alabama ruled that, as it's currently written, the statute does include, quote, unborn children who are located outside of a biological uterus at the time they are killed. And that they have the legal status of a U.S. minor person, so that if they are destroyed, they are now subject to wrongful death lawsuits. Okay, lots of questions. Lots of questions. A handful of which are, What if the power goes out? Who's responsible for the minor persons when the parents die? What happens when, oh, science advances to the point that embryos don't need to be implanted? Uh, That is, a pregnancy is not required for that embryo to become a full human. There are tons of questions here, uh, but the bottom line is IVF per se is not banned in this decision, but because of the obvious risk involved, nobody's going to be able to get insurance, et cetera, and therefore the service most likely will not be offered. So when you see headlines that say they banned IVF, that's, prob- that's a likely consequence of the decision, although that's not spelled out in the decision. So what now? Uh, the Supreme Court of Alabama can grant a motion for rehearing 
uh, if they want to. So it's possible that they will reconsider this. No mandates have been issued yet. It's very likely this cannot go to the U.S. Supreme Court because uh, state Supreme Courts are the final arbiter of what state law says. There is no appeal higher than that. So if you wanted to take a case to the Supreme Court, you would have to claim that a U.S. constitutional right has been violated. There's no constitutional right to IVF. It's very difficult to envision you know, a vehicle that could make it there. Um, and constitutionally, it's probably within the power of a state to ban uh, IVF. That's the legal consensus I've seen. So I'm watching this because I think it could further destabilize the pro-life coalition because a lot of nominally pro-life folks see IVF as a generally positive thing that allows people to have babies. Um, and the logic of this statute takes you to a very extreme place, obviously, legally, uh, you know, that every time an egg is fertilized, regardless of whether it results in a pregnancy, you have a potential wrongful death lawsuit uh, available. Uh, and since the court is simply interpreting the statute, this ultimately comes down to the legislature. So I'm watching to see whether the legislature revisits the law, which they just passed recently, uh, renewed pressure arises, um, some of which might come from people within the pro-life movement itself, uh, because again, this is Alabama. So that's what I got. Watch this space. Zach, what do you got? Yeah, so I got, I got two things today. Uh, one that I think is a, a positive, one that is, is less of a positive. The positive one is, in the past two years, 4.5 million people have quit smoking since the menthol ban went into effect. Now, I think that reasonable people, Ron, might, might look at that and say, hey, that's an infringement on freedom. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But what I know for sure is that 4.5 million people quitting smoking is a positive uh, national health impact. I think that's a good thing. And I just want to highlight the work of Dr. Sarah Mills, uh, someone that I, I know personally, and I'm a huge fan of. I think whether or not we continue on this trend of, of kind of making it harder for people to do things that, that are bad for themselves, she has done, she and her team have done fantastic research uh, and done a great societal good because there's a lot, 4.5 million people that are more likely to live healthy and longer lives. Uh, the other thing that I'm watching. You dirty is, consequentialist. <laughs> the weed is too strong. Uh, many people are saying, <laughs> and I'm going to talk about why we're seeing different outcomes from people smoking pot. You know, you look at the stuff that our parents were smoking back in the day and people weren't having psychotic breaks because it was only but so strong. I think that, you know, in states where they've legalized it, I think one, it should be legal, but I think that there's a conversation to be had about what is too strong. How strong should it be? You know, how much access should people have all, all that kind of stuff. And we're sorting through those things. And I think we're going to. But, you know, some of the weed that's on the market right now, it's like moonshine, but in, you know, pot equivalent. <laughs> it's too strong. Like, we got kids. They're having psychotic breakdowns from smoking weed. Like, we've lost the thread. That's not supposed to be the outcome. Uh, and so, you know, I, I think the strength of weed is going to be a thing that I'm following. I don't think it's talked about enough because people aren't worried about it. But as we study it more as, as, and as, as it's easier to study it, study it I think we're going to find out this thing that proponents have for a long time said is fine for you, no meaningful negative health impacts. I think in theory, they're right. But with the amount people are able to consume and with the strength of it, I think that that is actually changing. It's not your boomer parents weed. Many people are saying. <laughs> <laughs> any any comments on that, Ron? Uh, no comment at this time. Hagar, what'd you bring today? Well, as always, I'm always here to remind you of the conflicts around the world and how they tie to 
the to tie to Americans and American decisions. Um, I'm going to take you to Congo a little bit, where things are on the brink of a really major, major war that I don't think the U.S. will be able to prevent, unfortunately, for a few reasons. I'm going to sum it up super fast. You have a part, the eastern part of the Democratic Republic of Congo has been riddled with armed rebel groups. They've taken over that area pretty much uh, for the last two decades. It's a very resource-rich area. Um, but in particular, you have one major group called M23, which is backed by Rwanda. And this is where the U.S. is going to come in. So I'll get back to this. So hang in there with me. You have M23 that over the last few years has just taken over town after town. And now um, the most recent thing is that they are, they've encircled a town through which the humanitarian aid goes to 2 million refugees, Congolese refugees. Um, and so for, for a decade now, Congo, the Congolese army has been fighting this Rwanda-backed rebel group called M23. And forever, the international community and the U.S. has kind of overlooked, has kind of turned a little bit of a blind eye to this issue. Rwanda is a partner of the United States. And they're a partner because after the 1994 genocide, the U.S. was very in favor of supporting the post-genocide government because it was, you know, supporting stability. And because President Kagame, um, who has a horrible human rights track record, by the way, um, pursued policies that were favorable to U.S. business investment. And, uh, and he has also contributed heavily to U.N. peacekeeping missions. So the U.S. has kind of overlooked some of his anti-human rights, anti-democratic uh, tendencies because of that and, and behavior because of that. But the problem now is that you have a situation where they've backed, funded, they created this rebel group in the Democratic Republic of Congo, and they are on the brink of war. So the U.S. called out Rwanda and said, you need to stop and you need to pull out your missiles and troops from the area. They refused categorically. And it went to the U.N. Security Council, where, of course, they came up with not much. They sanctioned a few individuals. And they said, you know, they've called on the international community to um, to help stop the fighting there. But between the fact that every, the international community in the U.S. is turning to this so late in the game and the fact that the world is really distracted mostly by Israel, Gaza, and uh, and Ukraine, I just don't think that this is going to get the attention it needs. And it's going to be a war. It's going to be, it's just going to be horrific. As it is, you've had already 6 million die and 6 million displaced. So, um I just, I expect it to get worse and it's not going to get a lot of attention and it's tied to U.S. foreign policy. So I figured I'd mention it. Always here to to bring the, <laughs> the doom and gloom, but it is something I'm watching very closely. Okay, we are going to flip over to Politicology Plus um, and talk about the evolving, developing Fonnie Willis scandal in Georgia and whether that's going to get in the way of justice. Uh, before we do that, where can everybody find you on the internet, Hagar? They can find me across the internet, across social media and YouTube in particular at Oh My World Show. Please go there. Please subscribe. And also at Geek Out with Hagar. So at Oh My World Show and at Geek Out with Hagar. And Zach? I am deeply disappointed to say you can find me on X. Formerly oh, you're Twitter. back. I know. I'm embarrassed. I've, I've gotten off and I've gotten on <sighs> so many times. And every time I'm off, I'm like, boy, am I glad that I'm off. And I just keep coming back. And, and so... Rooting for Blue Sky, rooting for anything else, but you can find me on at ZachCZ. You can also go to my website, brackishsolutions.com, uh, and get to me that way. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening today. 
If you have questions about anything we discussed today, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. Whether it's an episode idea, a topic recommendation, or just a simple note about what you thought, we love to hear from you, and we might even use it on an upcoming episode. Also, if you can head over to the Apple Podcast app and rate us five stars and leave a review there, we'd really appreciate it. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover Politicology organically. I'm Ron Steslow, and I'll see you in the next episode. 